0: We find our call to worship this morning in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates.
1: Our first Old Testament meeting is found in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering.
2: Today's second Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 22, 1-18. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. "'Yes, my son,' Abraham replied. "'The fire and the wood are here,' Isaac said. "'But where is the lamb for the burnt offering?' Abraham answered, "'God himself would provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son.' And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him there on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, "'Abraham, Abraham!' "'Here I am,' he replied." The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through their offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me.
0: In Jeremiah 31, verses 29. 34. In those days people will no longer say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will give, forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more.
3: Good to see you all. Did you have a good fourth? Yeah, Fireworks, anybody? Yes. All right. I gathered with the Santa Claritin group at the parking lot at the mall, and we had an Adventist tailgate party, and it was, it was great. It was great. The question of the year is this. And I can't think of a more significant question coming out of sabbatical. Is the story of Jesus Christ embedded in the story of humanity worth organizing your life around? That's the question. We've been exploring this from a variety of different angles, and it's been, I think, a rich time. We've been exploring it through theology, starting with the doctrine of God and moving through the doctrine of Christ and spirit into the doctrine of ecclesiology. That is to say, what does it mean to be a church? And we've got a lot of work to do on that one yet, and that's good. We're at least making progress. But the question has an answer that's contemporary, it has an answer that's gospel, and it has an answer that's ancient. You see, modern cynics look at the Old Testament. And see a bunch of myths and fairy tales. Modern critics look at the Old Testament and they read stories like the one we just read of Abraham and Isaac up on Mount Moriah and they are appalled, and you should be too. Seriously, you should be appalled if you're not. Would any of you, no matter who told you, take your only son, march him up a mountain, bind him, throw him on an altar of wood and stone, and raise a knife to slay him in the name of some deity? I would hope not. You would deserve the lockdown we put you in. And I would suggest that none of us would think very highly of a God that asked that of us. If we look at the Canaanite deities, it was Moloch who wanted child sacrifice. Babies burned in his outstretched bronze arms. It was Baal that was the popular god of God. Of ancient Canaan. And so we would expect something more from the living God of creation and redemption than to demand that we sacrifice. And yet embedded in that story, as I'm going to get to a little later, is a forecast, a foretelling that's incredibly important when we look at the New Testament. It's incredibly valuable and rich and tells us a little bit about the way in which the ancients organized their lives around the story. Finally, there are those who would just say, I don't get it when they read the Old Testament. It just seems so boring. I don't understand the stories. I don't know how to relate to this. And what I want to offer you this morning is that the Old Testament by and large... Is, could, could be divided into a couple of genres That's the way we could look at it of literature We could look at it as poetry We could look at it as historical record We could look at it as prophetic word or apocalyptic literature We could look at it as wisdom literature We could look at it as a variety of things like that But when we break it down in terms of content and themes It looks more like this to me It's a story of where we come from and where we're going. And in the meantime, it's a story of how a people organized their lives to take that into account. Let me flesh that out for you just a little bit. If today we're asking the question, what does it look like to organize our lives around the story of Jesus, then when we have the story of God and humanity as framed in the Old Testament, we need to look at the ancients as doing the same thing. They're asking the question, and God is many times, according to the scriptural record, directing them on how they're going to live out that story. Am am I making sense? So if we have this record of how the ancients were living out their story, it might be helpful to us as we think about how to live out the story of Jesus today. Let's start with Genesis, the earlier earlier section I had us read. Uh, Genesis 4, I believe. 1 to 7. Let's, Let's just take a look at this. Now, it's very interesting because in some newer translations or different translations uh, than this, with the help of the Lord, than this NIV, uh, Eve says something other than, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. She says, Look, I have brought forth a man, I've created a man the same way God did. A wonderful framing. You have in the, uh, the primordial stage of creation, you have creation itself going on, or the primordial state of the earth before uh, it was organized, and then you have creation, and then you have sort of this birth of consciousness and civilization that's taking place here in early Genesis. And Adam and Eve are having their family, this first human family. And the record is prosaic, and it's poetic, and it's wonderful, and it tells us so many rich things about the story. In fact, it gives us the story around which the people of promise would later build their lives. We know that in Genesis chapter 3, we have the record of the fall of humanity, this tragic chapter that affects us to this day, this deep sense of rift between God and humanity between ourselves and one another. Even in terms of our own psyches, our relationship to our own self, we often experience the tear and rift of sin. And so you have this Genesis 3 account, this story which becomes critical to the language of understanding everything from tragedy to evil and back again in our experience. And then we get to chapter 4, and we have this human family emerging, and it's not very long at all before one kills another. And a tremendous tear to the soul of Cain takes place, and an unthinkable evil happens brother on brother in the context of family. Sin immediately becomes illustrated and becomes incredibly clear in a new way to an earthly family, tragically, horribly. But the underlying story there is one I want to just quickly pinpoint because it's something that has value and meaning and purpose and impact as we look at a timeline from creation to redemption and the way in which people have organized their lives around the story of God and humanity. And that is that when God talked to Adam and Eve after the fall, he presented them with clothing. Do you remember this? They felt naked and ashamed. And God presented them with animal skins. And if we think of the implication of that, an animal skin comes from an animal, and an animal without a skin is no longer a living animal. And so death has taken place already. Human beings have already experienced this, and it's a sacrificial death. God has already promised Eve that out of her answer, out of her progeny, out of her line, one yet to come would crush the serpent's head, and the serpent would bruise his heel. There's already a prophecy looking forward to Jesus Christ who would come. And in Genesis 3, as we move into this section in Genesis 4, already the sacrifice is being perverted. Abel brings a lamb as God had modeled and instructed. The lamb who we would later say of Jesus, here is the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Do you see the connection between Genesis 3 and 4 and this? And in Genesis 4, Cain is one who tills the soil, and Abel is one who looks after the flocks. And when it comes to careers, we are hard-pressed to say one is better than another. Indeed, they both have tremendous value. The farmer and the rancher, we need them both. But when it came to sacrifice, it was Abel who obeyed the instruction. And brought a lamb. And it was Cain who said, No, the fruits of my labor are good enough. And so, in this simple story that results in murder and loss and tragedy and an illustration of unthinkable pain and sin, we have the example of two people seeking to differently organize their lives around the story, one with tragic results. When we move to Genesis 22, the story of Isaac and Abraham that I just told earlier, there's so much that happens between Genesis 4 and Genesis 22, I can't even begin to explain. But a man named Abram has been called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He is not a Jew, but he's someone sensitive to the word of God. He's married to his half-sister Sarai, And they are without children. And God says, I want you to take your families, your your extended family, and go. I want you to leave Ur the Chaldees and go to a land that I'm going to show you, a land I'm going to give you, a rich land, a wonderful land. And so very early on in Genesis, we get the story of a promise that is a land grant. It's going to be a place of inheritance that happens early. In this story we'll eventually find out that God also promises Abraham that at some point that his descendants will be as the sands of the sea or the stars of the heaven. That's a lot of descendants. I think it was hyperbole. Just taking a guess there. But the idea was that he would be the father of a great nation. And indeed that became a story around which a people built their understanding of what it meant to live a life constructed around the story of God and humanity god told abram that he would have a wife with uh, i mean a son with his wife sarai who though 10 years younger was still already very old. He chuckled about it. And yet he moved forward in faith. Isaac, laughter, was born to them. And you can imagine he was the pride and joy, only mixed in in all of this is a very painful story about Abram's love for Ishmael, the son that he had with Sarai's servant. The names are changed. God changes their names to Sarah and Abraham because he's going to be the father of a great nation, and that's how we know them. And the story proceeds forward, but here we have now a moment in the life of Isaac, Abram's heir, Abraham's heir, his son, the one God is going to fulfill the promise through, who's taken on a three-day journey to a mountain, marched up a mountain, and is asking the innocent question, but Father, where is the sacrificial lamb? And Abraham, man of faith, says God will provide a lamb. And when they get to the top of the mountain, as you heard in the story, it's revealed that that sacrificial lamb will be Isaac himself. Now, I'm very grateful an angel intervened that day. What a mess of a story it would have been otherwise. I'm very grateful that Abraham's hand was restrained. I'm very grateful that Isaac was able to be the kind of son who trusted his father even to death and that Abraham was illustrated to be the kind of man who trusted God even if it cost him his only son. Because in this we see the foreshadowing of a God who would himself give up his only Son, his only begotten, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have life. The one who would be the Lamb that took away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, the one we organize our lives around. So this story of Abraham echoes something forward into the ages that's significant and beautiful and powerful, even though I would hope we are all appalled by the story. We would not think that that was the kind of thing that ought to be done. In the end, a ram is found in the thicket and sacrificed. Isaac lives. Isaac goes on to be the father of Esau and Jacob, of whom there are prophecies given even from his, uh, Esau and Jacob's mother at their birth. The younger, uh, the older will serve the younger, and so forth. It's amazing what happens in these stories. And as the stories go forward, indeed, prosperity comes. A land is settled upon and settled in. We read the story of a people exiled to Egypt and delivered years later. We read the story of a people who reinherit a land through taking it over from the peoples who live there at God's will and God's word. We read of the destiny of a people that see themselves as creating a city of God and a place where his dwelling might be permanently. See, one of the Old Testament stories... That we hear repeated from the tabernacle times on through is the story of God's glory. And the way it shone in the midst of them, the way it evidenced itself. And God showed himself in pillar of fire and pillar of cloud, in presence, in glory. There are so many stories. We can name a few. We have the promises that God makes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the covenants that are entered into. We have the law that comes as part of covenant at the Sinai. We have the reign of God through the judges and the disappointment of the kings. We have the story of Israel's constant flow between faithfulness and idolatry, loyalty and unfaithfulness. We have the prophets who constantly call them back. We have the stories of foreign powers that God appears to use as instruments of discipline. Bring his people back. In the reading that Debbie read, or was it Amanda? I can't remember. Phylacteries, all sorts of things that are done to remind the Hebrew person, the Jew, of God's presence and word and promise and power and covenant. I mean, you're religious, right? Or are you? Maybe you're mostly spiritual. I don't know. But don't you find extremely religious people kind of odd? Yes, I know you do. Okay, thank you. Nellie, I love your honesty. I always get a straight answer. Seriously, how many of you find extremely religious people a bit odd? Fanaticism. Oh, well, no, I'm not talking about fanaticism necessarily. That's really a problem, isn't it? That's, that's a whole other uh, bucket there. We find it odd because we don't see it as people choosing to organize their lives around the story. See, when you go to a Hebrew home and you see that little thing nailed to the doorpost kind of sideways, might be decorated, might be silver, might be something. Yeah, you've seen that? It actually contains a little scroll. It's to remind them as they enter and exit their house of something very important to them. When they pray, when you fly LL, Al, and, and I hope you all get the chance to do this and go to Israel, you'll see the Hasidics and the Orthodox gather around the galleys, and they wrap their phylacteries around their arms and put the scrolls upon their foreheads, and they, they begin the rituals of prayer and worship. They don't do this because it's comfortable or because they like an audience or because it's something that they want to be very public about. They do this because they've been ordered to, and they believe that by doing this, they are honoring the one and living their lives around the one who's called them to make himself the center of their worship. The texts that they wear and carry remind them of God's presence. The Yamlka, the covering of God's presence constantly upon you and with you covering of the head. Shabbat and all of its rituals, the welcoming of Sabbath, the songs, the candles, the meal, the challah. It's all meant to point to something. It's all embedded with symbolism and meaning. It all is rhythm and routine and we look at it and it seems odd. It seems strange. And yet it's a people, hopefully, This is what it comes down to. Living out the story of God and humanity the best that they know how. What does that look like for us? Get a bit of a picture of what it looks like in ancient times, right? I want to just point out something that uh, I may have pointed out at least once before in my time here, my eight plus years. Some of you may remember it and some of you certainly have not heard this before. So my apologies to those of you familiar. Perhaps the number one thing that the Old Testament is organized around is covenant. Embedded in covenant is sacrifice. Embedded in covenant is promise and fulfillment. Embedded in covenant is God's interaction and loyalty to his people. It is God who never fails covenant, and it is people who always do. Embedded in covenant is the idea of sin and failure, and the returned covenant, it's all there. But here are the major concerns, social concerns primarily, of covenant. Personhood. Covenant is designed to secure personhood. To affirm the value, dignity, purpose, and worth of each and every human being. It's to help us make sure that none of us are ever falsely accused. It's to keep us free from slander and the terrible effects of libel and slander. While women were clearly subordinate within Old Testament cultures, no woman is to be taken advantage of within the context of her subordination. Punishment for wrongdoing was not to be excessive or dehumanizing. Now, we might want to argue with that one too. Break the Sabbath, get stoned. Seems a little bit excessive. Maybe some of you break the Sabbath by getting stoned. I hope that's not the case. I didn't say that. I didn't, I didn't say that. You've heard me incorrectly. It's all right. Every Israelite's dignity and right to be God's freed person or slave servant was to be honored and safeguarded. The inheritance of land was to be secured. This was what all of these uh, Jubilee feasts and things were about. Everyone was to work, and everyone was to receive the fruit of their own labor. The fruit of the ground was to be shared in such a way that no one suffered undue need. Sabbath was a rest that extended to all classes of people and animals and soil universally. Rest, that thing our culture knows so very little about. Marriage relationships were to be kept inviolate. No one, however disabled, impoverished, or powerless, was to be oppressed or exploited. Everyone was to have access to the courts and a free trial. Every person's place in the social order was to be honored and respected. No one was above the law, not even the king himself. In concern for the welfare of animals... And other creatures was to be extended beyond the human person. That is to say, animal rights to some degree were valued and kept in concern. When we go to Jeremiah, and you can turn there, Jeremiah 31. And I know the cadence of my voice is probably putting you to sleep, so I won't be too much longer with this, but let's just remember what Jeremiah 31 says. And I'm looking at 31:31 31, 31 in this case. The time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. No more phylacteries. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, "Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. That's the covenant coming. In addition to promise and covenant and all these things we have, those passages of Scripture which point us forward, which direct our gaze not only to the New Testament fulfillments, but beyond. Promises that we take not only to be fulfilled in part in the coming of Jesus Christ the first time, but that we look to be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus the second time. Eric was kind enough to share a few of these thoughts with me. Any of the rest of you are welcome to share those kinds of things too, but I appreciate uh, his memory and his uh, capacity to What's the word I'm looking for? Access. Things like this. Gather around, Jacob said, so that I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of all nations shall be his. Does that sound like Jesus? The Jesus who came and the Jesus who will yet come. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh will I see God. I myself will see him. With my own eyes, I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Does that sound like our Jesus? who has come and is coming. Isaiah 2 says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God, of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. Zion the word of the lord from jerusalem he will judge between the nations he will settle disputes for many peoples they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore ancient language today it's all about drones and you know all kinds of other highly sophisticated things but conceptually is this about our god In the person of Christ, is this about the one yet to come who will bring about a new age of peace and worship, a new age of prosperity and presence? Malachi, the last word, talks about judgment and covenant and renewal. And he foresees this time. Surely the day is coming says Malachi, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked, They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord God Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And that is what Malachi says. Did not the people in Jesus' day ask, "Is is he Elijah? They did, didn't they? And does this not speak of a day yet to come? We hope it does. We, too, are people of promise. We, too, are people of a covenant, only a newer one. We, too, are people who are called to be God's people, not incidentally, but wholly. Not partially, but completely. Not half-heartedly but holy. We, too, are called to organize our lives around the story. Our story may not be so directly related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It may not be so clearly tied to Sinai. We may have trouble with many of the stories as we read them in the Old Testament, both understanding them and living with the cultural references of the time but if we understand them to be the story of how a people organize their lives and if we seek to do the same i think we're in good place good stead we're in a we're where we need to be in learning and seeking to be the people of god today I don't expect that to look exactly like it did 2,000 years ago. But in some ways, it's not much different. The Israel who was asked to choose had to do so, and the same choice comes to you today. Is this a story worth organizing your life around? It is or it isn't. Hey, own it. If it isn't, God bless you. Good luck to you. We want to remain in contact with you. We believe that God loves you. And we'll be praying that God will work on your life and heart, wherever you find yourself. But own it. And if it's a story worth organizing your life around... Quit pretending that that doesn't impact every aspect of the way we live. We do not have the luxury of living the sort of bifurcated, separated, compartmentalized lives we live. Some of that's useful. Some of those are tools. Some of that's helpful in survival. I'm not trying to... Erase it to that degree. But we don't have a social life, a work life, a marital life, a family life, a personal life. Help me, there's got to be more. A church life. We don't have all those lives, we have one life before God. All of these are just aspects of that life. And the more we work with the Spirit of God to bring these together in a whole that honors Him from Monday to Sunday, from Sabbath to Sabbath, the more our lives will reflect the truth that we are a people who have chosen to organize our lives around the story of Jesus. More on that next week. And so, Lord, as we go from this place, teach us daily how to live this story, your story, self-sacrificing love and grace in this world. Amen.